Hi, this is Emily Gibson. And this is Caitlin McFarland. And we're the co-founders of ATX Television Festival. And you are listening to the TV Campfire. We have a new TV Campfire from season eight. You should know, since we're planning season nine, I have to pause after everyone and be like, what are we releasing? I also think that we're already in 2020. Yes. So we're all I'm also 40 probably by the end of this. Yep. (laughs) I'm not near 40. I mean, I'm near it, whatever. (laughs) But this week's release, this year we finally got to do our mental health on TV panel, which is called Breaking the Stigma, Mental Health on TV. We like to hit it on the nose. We also like a good colon. We do. Colons are a big deal in our in our panel titles. But this one, I am very, very, very proud of. Proud of all of our panels. But this one we tried to do last year, season seven. And it was one that we felt TV was getting such great representation of a variety of different mental health issues or diagnosis on TV that we had very specific what shows we wanted on it. And when those people were not available, it was a panel we pulled because we didn't want to just talk about it in theory or concept. We wanted to talk about it in specificity. And what was cool about waiting a year was Jen brought it back up. Jen, our director of programming, brought it back up for season eight. And she actually had the idea to start with, she's like, I think we, as opposed to going after Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and even Legion that is very obviously about mental health. What about things like, and this person's not on it, but like a BoJack Horseman dealing with mental health and from the very beginning, Haunting of Hill House. And these sort of more even, you might not think of that show. You can't, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, you can't talk about that show without talking about what it's doing with mental health, which is amazing and would have loved to have them on it. But to really approach it from this place of it's kind of in everything because Mm -hmm. It's so big. You know, everyone basically is dealing. Mental health is anxiety and depression as well as bipolar or anything in between. And so it was just really fun this year to build with Jen what the concept was and what was broad enough as our first mental health panel to include a lot of different things and kind of have the big conversation before we had the smaller one. So I think like in talking about how this panel was built, the thing that was the most exciting to me was it very I feel like it was very early on. We confirmed Meredith Averill, the Mm co-showrunner of Haunting of Hill House. And what was even cooler was we sent her an email to invite her because we were just doing it like not through networks and studios and things. And her response back was that she was a big fan of the TV campfire and she'd been listening to it. And she was like basically like waiting, dreaming. I don't know. I don't want to use too big of words, but like (laughs) wanted to come to the in our head. Yeah. To both be on the podcast and be come to the festival. And so it was just like kind of really special, I think, to have her there and to meet her both at the festival. She did a couple of panels. She did a grief panel in this one. She does, there will be a s'more coming out with her later. But I just think that was such, for a panel that went through a lot of, uh, I don't even want to say twists and turns, but like it took a while. It took two festivals to do, to then have the new iteration, have a show thrown out and then have that co-show runner like really want to come was just super special for me personally. I also feel like because the person that it felt from the beginning that was a definite that you always wanted on it was Stephen Falk. Yeah. I mean, that was, I feel like You're the Worst was one of the first shows that so blatantly dealt with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, this is the season two of You're the Worst um, and dealing with depression was, I mean, the very much the first show that I've ever seen. Like deal with it head on. Yes. Like truly. And it's not even just a like something that's in the background or a one episode right. or any of that. It is a this is an arc and something that's going to keep going. Something that's mm-hmm. both building in season one. Now we've named it in season two. Right. And 100%. are dealing with it. And the other characters 
around her having to deal with well, it. Well, because, well, and then not just her, because, excuse me for forgetting his name right now, but there's a PTSD. Yep. There's other, it's not just her with her depression and anxiety, which is severe. It's not just like generalized, but then there are other versions of mental health and things that are also being dealt with very head on and very specifically. But I agree. Like, I think that's the other thing in the twists and turns of building it. It was nice to have year two add somebody because Haunting Hill House had not come out when yes. we were first. But then to have somebody that was from that original, like they're doing this special thing that show ended this year. So there was an, a button for that. Stephen had come to the festival before. So he was a delight. There is a s'more on this episode with a little extra interview with Stephen. But I agree. Like, it was nice to see on either ends of it. Yep. And then you have Mike Royce, whom we love dearly. And we always feel like we're asking him to be on too many panels. <laughs> because one day at a time, I mean, all it of his shows. on everything. Well, when you look at Enlisted and you look at Men of a Certain Age mm -hmm. and One Day at a Time and his huge resume, he can basically talk on any panel. And mm -hmm. he's so well-spoken and just genuinely the nicest. So we basically... I feel like we sent him our entire programming. We're like, we want you to be on everything. And then it's like, which ones would you like to talk about? Which is always interesting. Like, he picked this week. We probably sent him seven. Yep. And he committed to three. Which um, is great. Which is great. But this was one of them that was great because of Justina Machado's character on One Day at a Time touching. I mean, I'm, there. I think there's even more than just hers. But she goes to group therapy yep. and, like, is on medication and things like that to deal with hers. And PTSD is, yep. like, it's huge. And then you added Schneider with alcoholism. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a, he talks so eloquently about it. And the show, when you're looking at a half hour real comedy, you have You're the Worst, which is a half hour semi comedy. <laughs> Modern comedy. <laughs> call, and then a half hour mm -hmm. sitcom, like multicam mm -hmm. comedy and how they both are dealing with those yep. is so interesting. And then we talked about this a little bit in our Inside ATX series that came out before and a little bit after the festival. We do a call with Ariel Kebel, who's an actress that's also on this panel. And this was really interesting because we also send our advisory board members and ambassadors a list of our programming because sometimes we don't know what people are like uh, equipped. Equipped, yeah. Um, qualified. Qualified. Okay, great. Qualified. We don't know what they're always qualified to talk about, but we also then don't know what they're interested in. So we send them the list. They send it back. And she wrote back about mental health. And I was thinking about really just straight representation. Like, what has she played? And she really hasn't, but she's really... She will in the future, which we can talk about. But when she first signed up for it or wanted to be on it, one, we love having different points of view represented. So we have three writers on the panel and then we added an actress. But she dealt with it a lot in her personal life, both just on her own of, you know, her own journey. But her she talks a little bit about it. Her sister has dealt with a diagnosis and had sort of a public breakdown of some sort and not some sort, but she talks. I don't want to talk about it for her, but like her journey with that personally and the organization she's now a part of that are dealing with it in real life and how important that representation on screen is and that varied and diversified representation of it in a variety of different ways. But then I found out, and I think it's in the Inside she, ATX ep oh. episode that we released where she t basically says that her new show that's coming out mid-season on NBC called Lincoln. Her character is dealing with anxiety and depression, maybe mm -hmm. PTSD too. And yeah, what she does talk about on the panel. On the panel, talking about how the showrunner and producers really listened to her when she had thoughts on the character mm -hmm. and what the character is going through and how the character is being portrayed, which is pretty awesome. It's pretty Especially awesome. for a pilot. Yeah, a pilot. Absolutely. And then it's moderated by one of our favorite people on the planet, Ben Travers of IndieWire. I know. We shouldn't play favorites. We have a number of we favorites have a lot for of favorites. anyone listening. Ben Travers is definitely one of them. One of the things they talked about, I just want to know if you have any mm -hmm. 
number ones of these are high memories of um they talk about special episodes of that that used to be yeah. the thing that people did in order to deal with some of these issues do you have any that you remember <laughs> from growing up well, it's funny you asked me this earlier and i was like ah, i remember that that was a thing but i don't think i really have any memories of it now when you just brought it up again the, i don't know that they labeled it as this because i feel like they then really leaned into it, especially like the networks would be like tonight on a very special episode of yes. Blossom. And like, I don't remember those. But when you said it just now, I thought of the Saved by the Bell episode. That's what I think of too. With Jesse and the pills. Yes, I feel like our generation, that is the episode yeah. you think of. I'm so, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so scared. Yes. Like, yeah. Which was such, I mean, obviously it stayed yeah. in all of our heads. Never talked about again. Never dealt with oh again. on, the, on show. the show i was yes, like yes. it's been talked about for, for decades no, the episode's <laughs> talked about, but like on the show talk about a very special episode of. yeah we never dealt with her like she didn't have an addiction that went past that week nope that nope. was a very quick it addiction. was very solved in the moment yeah but yes that's the one that stands out but i don't remember if it's said today or tonight on a very special episode of say by the bell no in a way that people talk about they did do with other shows yeah so i don't remember those ones i do remember after school specials i yes. saw a few of those but it was, I think the big thing was those storylines where someone would deal with something and then it was gone. terrible or yeah, yeah. really hard for an episode and then never, yeah. never talked about again. Right. Where is this like? Whereas, and I yes. feel mental illness, I mean, not more than other things, but what people are doing now with mental illness is they are making it part of the character's everyday struggle. Right. And some days it flares up and some days it doesn't. I mean, there's right. many episodes of One Day at a Time where Justina's character is not dealing with yeah. it at all, but then it's always kind of in the background. And so when it is talked about, you're not like, oh, they haven't talked about it in four episodes. I forgot that that was a thing. Right. It's like a therapy scene, a group therapy scene, but she's really just complaining about her mom in it. But yeah. it's still it's still there and it still reminds you. Yeah. No, I think it's great. And I think the spectrum of showing it is great. I had originally wanted this panel and I understand the trigger word, so I, I gave it up, but was redefining normal because mm -hmm. I think the other part about mental illness now outside of television representation, but just in life, is everybody accepting that, like, it is a spectrum in a way that, like, it's not to say that, like, everybody gets to have a problem. It's not like allergies, but that, like, we all have it to a certain degree and acknowledging it and calling it out and giving yourself the space to say, like, oh, I don't have to be perfect. And so the, re the original title of, like, Redefining Normal was the idea that, like, it's normal <laughs> in that way. But I understand it's a very triggering word. But I like... In what you're saying, too, is that it's making it so prevalent that it has so much more space to be accepted that it's not like, oh, they have a problem. Yeah. It's like, no, we all have a problem. It's just like, what is your problem? <laughs> and it's also interesting on the panel that they talk not only about characters, but they talk about the industry and how the industry right. is starting to support people needing to have help and uh, yeah. getting the help that they need in a way that you would a physical illness. Yeah. They're starting to support it and people are recognizing it in a way that hasn't been done in the past because yeah. it hasn't been talked about. Yeah. And I feel like that's where the changes are made. People are now starting to understand what that looks like. Yeah. And it's so different in different parts of life. It just made me think now because it's said at the end of every episode this season, but our opening night screening of Euphoria, which we all fell in love with post-Euphoria premiere, <laughs> but it says, you know, like, there are all those kids are dealing with something slightly different from addiction to depression to anger management, all of these things for all variety of reasons. And at the end, it just sort of is like, if you need help or yes. if you or someone you know needs help in a variety of ways. And they, ha I never went to the website because I, I didn't need Euphoria's help, but yes. other people might. But yeah, that spectrum of representation is wide and varied and... 
I just love that we finally get to talk about it. And by the way, probably can talk about it again. I know. I, that's <laughs> a great thing. I mean, great thing. I don't know I, if that's uh, the right term. But that because we had such a variety of shows and viewpoints that now you can really start to dissect and dig into specific mm-hmm. areas of mental illness. Mm-hmm. And they also talk some about physical handicaps and really, like, starting to look that direction, too, and what that representation is like on TV. I feel like this is just the beginning conversation for many more that are now able to be had. 100%. So with that, we hope you guys enjoy Breaking the Stigma, moderated by Ben Travers of IndieWire. Emily, that was very kind of you. You're obviously one of my favorites as well. Uh, who's excited to be here? Who's excited to dig in? All right, great. We've got such a full house. Thank you all for coming out. I know there's so much going on at the festival, for, so for you to make the time to be here is really exciting. Um, so let's get right to it. Uh, first and foremost, I want to introduce the Haunting of Hill House co-showrunner, executive producer, and writer, Meredith Averill. Uh, Next up, we've got the star of Midnight Texas and the upcoming Lincoln, not to mention, uh, I mean, a dozen other shows that I'm sure you love. Uh, uh, ATX's own Ariel Kebble. Oh, where my name is. (laughs) Happy Saturday. It's hard to see sometimes. It's dark up here. They haven't turned the lights on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Next up, fresh off the One Day at a Time panel across the street, the creator, writer, and executive producer, Mike Royce. And last but certainly not least, the creator, writer, executive producer, and director of FX's You're the Worst, Stephen Falk. All right, thanks for coming out, everybody. Thanks for having us. You know, a little bit girls little bit versus boys here. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and also, can I just say thank you all for coming? It is incredible to see a room full of people showing up for this panel. I know it's important to all of us, but so thank you already for being here. It's inspiring. Very well said. Um, and to kick things off, I just I kind of wanted to start with a little bit of perspective and just try to get your read on on. Um, when you first remember this topic coming up in television, because obviously it's it's grow, it's getting a lot of traction. We're paying a lot more attention to mental illness and dealing with it in a variety of different ways on TV. Um, but for each of you, uh, do you remember kind of the first time you noticed somebody talking about it kind of openly and honestly on TV and what your reaction was to it? Um, and anybody who has the first thought can start, I guess. Openly and honestly. I don't know. I mean, I think I remember a time when there used to be, when shows would have a very special episode, right? Um, And that they would tackle something, you know, specific. And what I think is nice now is that you no longer have that. Every episode can be its own sort of very special episode. And you don't have to be like, oh, this is this episode that's going to be about this now. And, you know, it suddenly takes a totally different shift in tone. But uh, that we've kind of driven away from that model, I think, is kind of great. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I have these vague memories when I was a kid watching MASH reruns, and there seemed to be a lot of, maybe not as direct and open, but certainly hitting on what 
is clearly going to be a lot of PTSD and a lot of the traumas of war in a, in a sitcom setting. That, as a little kid to me, was absolutely fucking baffling and mind-blowing. I was like, I, you know, I thought this was like a funny ha-ha show. And, um, and, but to see them sort of take those things on was really remarkable. Um, and this might sound like a, a lighter note, but it, I remember watching Ally McBeal with, with the dancing baby. Ooga chaka, ooga chaka, ooga. And I, I, clearly I loved the dancing baby, but I remember, I used to watch it with my family, and I remember thinking like, wow, I've never seen like a, a lead, especially female character, kind of have these like, checkout moments where it's like, you know, the people in front of her are seeing one thing and one thing's happening and she's experiencing a completely different other thing. And on certain days it like helps her get through the day and on other days it drives her nuts, you know? And I remember thinking like, yeah, I do that too. Like sometimes I feel like whoever's talking to me and I'm actually like stabbing them in the eye or like, you know, like doing something where it's like, ah, but you can't say those things, but you're feeling those things. And I liked how in a very like comedic way, they they brought that in. They brought out these kind of like checkout moments. And I feel like, you know, I remember as a kid that felt very relatable. Well, spinning off the idea of using comedy as kind of an access point, I was curious, especially from Stephen and Mike, just when you kind of decided to incorporate these these ideas of, of PTSD, of anxiety, depression into your into your comedies, were you intimidated at all? Were you worried that, you know, I don't know if this is going to fit because, you know, like you said, that this is supposed to be, ha-ha, people are expecting something very funny, and yet we're going to address something in, a, in an honest way and have that conversation? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, so we debuted, I guess... Five six years ago on uh, my show, you're the worst. And the first season, we didn't bring it up. <laughs> my little show, you're the worst. Uh, uh, I was that was not meant for that. Uh, <laughs> um, and the first season, we sort of set up these really kind of broken garbage people, for lack of a better word. And when we got a second season, I knew I, I was a little surprised because our ratings were not that great. Um, um, but I knew people were enjoying it. And so when we got a second season, we were sort of like, well, now we can, like, it just felt like bonus, like extra free baseball. Like now, oh, oh shit, okay, they're giving us a second season. Let's, like, really do something here. And, and not only, you know, crassly to get, you know, maybe get some, uh, some ink and some attention, but also we had this great opportunity to um, delve into, like really do an origin story for someone's brokenness. And for me, that, that notion of getting to sort of go deeper into a character and explaining what we had set up already and show why this person is this way, you know, that she suffers from, from depression, has her whole life, and boom, right when her relationship seems to be in a good place, here it comes again. And... Um, that was incredibly scary uh, when we brought it up in the, in the writer's room, but my brain is broken in such a way that if I bring something up like that, if it's mentioned, if it's on the board, I have to do it because it seems so intimidating. And so when I pitched the, pitched the season to FX, I was deeply worried, and, um, but they are incredibly smart people, but they kind of stared at me and said, wait, you want to do a romantic comedy about clinical depression this season. And I was like, 
Yeah, but I really, really think I know how to make it interesting and funny. I had no idea how to make it interesting and funny. <laughs> Just when John Langraff's staring at you with those, those eyes with 180 IQ uh, popping out of them, you have to pretend. Uh, and so our mandate was to take something that can seem very, um, you know, c can seem uh, uh, very static at times, making it interesting. And what I realized it was for us was placing it in the context of a relationship, what a mental illness does to the relationship. And once we kept that as the focus, that uh, instantly led to conflict, which is just another name for story. As far as um, just, so on One Day at a Time, our character, thank you, thank you, that's the way they, thank you, sorry, I just want to show you how to, that's, you should acknowledge. <laughs> um, anyway, I want to nod. <laughs> um, our character has anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and I'm only separating those things out because when we started, uh, I wasn't, so I had done, <laughs> this is terrible. Yeah, they do it. Right, do it. <laughs> I had, <laughs> let me do it the right way. I had done a little show called Enlisted. <laughs> and I'm so sorry. Um, so on Enlisted, Kevin Beagle really wanted to deal with PTSD. Obviously, we were talking about uh, soldiers here. So I had already done this uh, a little bit, and we had hired some really great consultants to talk to us about all this stuff. So we went into it a little bit. We hired the same consultants on one day at a time to talk to us about PTSD, and um, we also interviewed a couple. Uh, it wasn't the plan, it's sort of the people that, you know, Norman Lear's company helped us uh, uh, find some, some, they just turned out to be uh, people who gave us enormous amounts of story. It was an, a married couple that were, wasn't together any, anymore. They met in the army, and she came in one day and talked to us for two hours. It was, I mean, Walt, just the most compelling story you've ever heard. Uh, and she said she suffers from PTSD, but she's in a relationship with someone, was in a relationship with her husband, who also suffered from PTSD in a, in, a, in a different sense. And she told us she had PTSD from being in a relationship with someone with PTSD. And it sounds, you know, it's almost the way you say it, it sounds like a joke, but it was not a joke, obviously. He came in and was just, I mean, I felt very sorry for him because here is a person who had gone through so, so, so much and she had really put her life back together and he, he had not. And he was self-medicating um, a lot. He was extremely mistrustful of the VA. And I'm just saying all this is, this is where all these stories came from. We just, you know, I'm just a stupid writer. Like I like to tell stories. I like to tell stories about things that are compelling. These are all things I don't, I have not experienced these things. So we just took from uh, their lives uh, with their permission and sort of built our characters that way. Uh, well, Meredith, I wanted to ask about, about The Haunting of Hill House because I feel like um, genre, I mean, I mean, comedy obviously has its own challenges, but uh, horror can be, has, has had a lot of... Your show terrifies me. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> In a good way. You're welcome, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, but there's, I mean, there's a lot of great traumatic stories within horror that are taken very seriously and, and depicted very honestly. And at the same time, um, you know, audiences can dismiss those stories because they're just like, oh, it's just a scary story. It, it's a ghost story or it's something where I don't have to take it that seriously. So 
with yours, I mean, what was it that kind of helped you delineate? Like, did the show help you and help viewers delineate between someone who has anxiety and someone who's afraid? Like, did you look at it and see it as an opportunity to kind of say, this is, this is what somebody's really going through, and then this is what you can feel because of it on other issues? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we always approached it from character. So, you know, we looked at a character like Nell, who uh, was someone who was voiceless and felt that no one was listening to her her whole life. She was trying to tell her family that this house was bad and no one would listen to her. And so when we were thinking about what she might be suffering from, uh, it, this isn't a mental illness, it's a sleep disorder, but we talked about sleep paralysis, which I actually happen to also suffer from. Um, so it felt sort of like this natural pairing of being able to, you know, take a ailment and kind of prescribe it and give it to a character, but it also had an emotional reason for it. And I think that is... For us, that was always the way we sort of built our characters and what they were suffering from. Why did it make sense for Luke to be addicted to drugs? Because he needed something to numb himself from the trauma uh, of what happened to him in the house. So I think because we always approached it from that way and not, you know what would be cool? It'd be cool if she had sleep paralysis, because that's really scary, because that means she can't move and she can see the bent neck lady and she can't. We didn't approach it from that way. And it's pretty cool that it happened to be really scary and you get that really like you get that nice genre horror element from it but I think what people really responded to about the show was how emotional it was in addition to the fact that it scared the shit out of them which is great but I also think like the surprising thing that came from it that I am that we're all so proud of the show for is that it moved people um, and so, you know, I think what we're seeing now, especially with horror, is, you know, this, their quote-unquote elevated horror that is about something. And, you know, you have Get Out and you have Hereditary, and they're taking on these really serious issues, which I think is really exciting. But it also, you know, imbues us with a lot of responsibility to tell those stories with sensitivity. Because what make, what's, a, what's a little yikesy to me is if you start equating a mental illness with, for example, demonic possession, <laughs> you know, which I think is a very easy to do and is, uh, you know, for me just personally, I think that that's not, that's not, that's doing a disservice to people who actually suffer from that mental illness. It kind of minimizes it, it sensationalizes it in a way. So I think as excited as I am that the genre is kind of moving in this direction. I do think that there's this added weight of responsibility on us to make sure that we're not, that we're always treating those issues with, with sensitivity, regardless of the genre, of course, but definitely in, in the horror genre for sure. Well, I mean, speaking of that responsibility, Ariel, you're playing somebody with PTSD in an upcoming show called Lincoln. Um, yeah. What, uh, right, Lincoln, <laughs> sight unseen, deserving it, of course. I'm sorry, what was... The, the, it was no, just so loud in here with applause. Never a problem, always a good thing. Um, just, but what, what kind of preparation did you do for that part, and how did you kind of take that responsibility on your shoulders as an actor to make sure that you were portraying this accurately, and, and why is that an important thing to do? 
Sure. Um, first of all, I am, as, as the only actress on this panel, I'm very grateful and honored to be on this panel with each of you. I, I love your shows, and I love hearing you say already what you've said and shared, and it's so important, and it's so beautiful. So I'm happy to be here with you all, and thank you for doing what you're doing. Also, I tested for Unlisted. Anyways. <laughs> but that's cool. I love Angelique. Uh... <laughs> Also, you know, not a long-running show, so you may have... Uh... <laughs> um, so, going back... So, my character, Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln is based on the Bone Collector. Um, so, I play Officer Amelia Sachs, uh, originally played by Angelina Jolie. And um, in the pilot, we learn that part of her backstory is um, she suffers from PTSD and multiple anxiety disorders. And... When I read this script, uh, literally page two, I was like, I need to bring this character to life. I know her. I get her. I know she's going to teach me things. I know that there's things I need to bring to her. I, I just have to do this. And that doesn't happen all the time. So when it does, I really, really pay attention. And um, in my personal life, with some characters, I have to do a lot of outside research. You know, like I will put myself in certain situations. If I'm playing a doctor, I will go to hospitals and, and do that sort of a thing. With this particular role, there was so much inside of me. I felt like waiting to come out. Um, I, with both my own personal experience with mental health and also my family and very close friends, um, it's very public knowledge. My sister went missing a year ago. Um, <clears throat> we found her. She's doing incredible. She is very outspoken on her Instagram about her mental health journey. And during that time, it was one of the scariest times of my life and my family's. And um, <clears throat> when we found her, we, we, we went public for, for help. <laughs> um, and when we found her as part of my own healing and my family's healing, I think the biggest thing I learned about myself during that time was how much I'd kept inside uh, out of a way of, like, protecting her or my family, thinking I was doing the right thing by not talking about it because it wasn't necessarily maybe my place. But in not talking about it, I forgot to remember that I wasn't taking care of myself either. And I think there's a really fine line. Obviously, I'm not going to tell my sister's personal story. That's for her to tell. But there is a... But I am allowed to speak about what I'm going through. And... I felt like, um, you know, I have my own anxiety uh, issues. And I, so I felt like when I read this character, I was getting hit from two sides. I was getting hit from the side of like, okay, how do I bring my story to life? Because I've actually been so busy protecting other people's stories. I haven't yet given myself a chance to tell my own and how important that is. And also... In the pilot, my sister goes missing. So how, yes, <laughs> thank you, BJ and Mark. <laughs> um, so how do I also show the strength and brokenness of someone searching for a family member? And, um, and what I will always remember, too, was the the sense of community. I have never felt, I mean, we joke about Instagram, but... I have never felt the power of Instagram more than in that situation. And I learned it was safe to share what I was 
going through. And I felt like the community was holding me up and holding my family up in a time that I was just like, my God, for the rest of my life, I want to honor that and find different ways in my art to talk about the power of community and truly what it, what it meant to me. So, so, so those are all things I want to bring to the character. <laughs> I mean, thank you for sharing. That's, that's, that's shockingly like how much there is to connect with in that part and you're able to get it. That's, that's going to be very exciting to watch. Um, and in terms of kind of, of, of knowing that those connections are so personal that when we are talking about these kind of issues, they do connect on such a level that's, that can be a lot deeper than other things that come up on, on TV or movies or other shows. Um, you talked a little bit, Mike, about the the kind of the consultants that come in and the, and the research that you did. Um, but what's what's the key to making you feel comfortable about it? Because again, like you said, you're you're a writer. Uh, you're telling somebody else's story. You're trying to represent something honestly. Um, what kind of research do you do to make sure that you're you know you're there? That that makes you feel like okay, I've I've got this. Well, yeah, I, it's it's certainly getting their permission to you know open up about things uh, and, you know, for the purposes of we might use this as part of the show um, is the first thing. We, you know, we, we're just trying, it's something like anything having to do with mental health, you have to take extra steps to make sure you're getting it right because the, the harm in putting out, you know, misinformation or depicting something in a way that could affect people just has multiple I just feel like, you, could, you know, TV can have a lot of impact. And if you put something out there that's a, a story um, that is putting on misinformation, you can really harm some people. So when it comes to, like, you know, PTSD, we had to certainly go outside of our circle of writers to, to research. Anxiety and depression, we did not. <laughs> we... <laughs> We had a teeming group of experts <laughs> who came in every day, sometimes. <laughs> That's right. We have a country full of experts. And um, the things that we dealt with in the second season where Penelope tries to go off her meds um, and, you know, was, was all picked from people opening up in the room and um, telling their story and... Um, we really wanted to tell that story because we wanted to make it, the people who were going through this felt it was very important to put the message out there that you can't, there's no need to be a hero. If you try to be a hero, bad things will happen. You know, that it's, there's no, taking care of yourself is the most, the paramount uh, thing when it comes to anxiety and depression, medication and whatever else you're doing to help yourself with that doesn't, you know, it's not a weakness to have to continue on of it, on it. And, um, you know, we're really proud of that particular show because of uh, sending that message. And um, we did a show in last season about uh, panic attacks. And I, I'm already like off the rails because I, you know, we had a whole thing about anxiety attacks versus panic attacks. And in right now, somebody can probably correct me out there because they're different. And so I apologize if I'm already mislabeling, but, um, a friend of mine was unintentionally demonstrated to me. Uh, it was actually quite, you know, it was for me an incredible thing to witness. Came in on, on the phone. I, I immediately knew something was wrong. There was a lot of heavy breathing, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, 
and, and clearly it was just, I was like, maybe somebody died and the person was very upset. And um, then they hung up the phone and turned to me and said, that's a panic attack. <laughs> and the switch, like basically the person on the other end was helping them calm down. And uh, it was a system that they had in place. Basically it was their go-to sort of way of dealing with when they were in that situation. So we thought that would be a valuable sort of theme for a show of you know different ways of coping and uh, showing Penelope do that. So you know if if it's any if it ever gets into medical stuff, then you have to definitely go out and you know I mean you, we also had a nurse practitioner consultant who would come in and help us with that stuff. But um, yeah, it's it's it, it's it. I guess we just try to think about it in every sense and go: Do we are we getting this right? Do we have is this vetted in the way it needs to be vetted, and uh, and go from there? Well, I mean, Stephen, with um, with you're the worst. One of the things that struck me uh, about kind of how the show developed over the years was, especially in relation to Edgar's character, and how much my conversations with Desmond Borges changed when he went through that arc about his PTSD. And one of the things that was that was brought up, you know, very clearly in the show, and made very clear in the show, and also talked about a lot outside of it was when you know, this specific veteran was seeking treatment, it was extremely difficult to go through veteran affairs and, and to get what he needed from them. And um, again, like, like everybody's become so outspoken about it, which is so great, and they've drawn this, this spotlight to it. Uh, but on your end, like what went into discovering that and, and for putting it on the screen? Like why was that so important? Yeah, I mean, I, I swear my show's a comedy, but... Um... <laughs> We have a veteran on the show, and um, that's always just sort of been a, a weird secret pet um, issue of mine because I'm such a pussy. I would never go to war, and uh, and 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 it's not something that like you know hipster, mostly white writer Hollywood people ever do, and they don't write about it. There are very few veterans in in writers' rooms. And, you know, the Writers Guild has a really good program to try to change that. Um, but a, as such, you don't see that a lot. And I always ha have thought that was a shame because we need visibility on veterans' issues. And so, you know, so I, I, I put that character in from the pilot knowing that I wanted to sort of delve into it more and more as time went on. And, you know, the, the veterans we were talking to and, and Desmond Borges was talking to, um, you know, some of the complaints about, about trying to deal with the VA, not only the stigma, which is real and terrible, but also just the pure hell. Like, you think it's hard for, to make a doctor's appointment and find the right specialist on your plan. With them, it's, it's, it's really difficult. And the, the, um, the over-medication um, is, you know, and, and uh, so we just really wanted to do that, and so we did this episode called 22 in the third season, which is sort of about the maybe apocryphal number of veteran suicides that happen per day. Um, there's some, some debate about that. Um, and, and Edgar ends up sort of having a, a, a day of it after going off his meds for sexual reasons. And um, li likewise, we wanted to be very careful um, and, and depict all sides, but you know, some of the veterans we talked to, the, one of the things they said the most, you know, I was like, so what, like, what do you want? What would you want from us, from a depiction of this? And they were like, 
you know, we're, we're, it's not all, all serious. Like, we are funny. Like, we like to bust balls and we like to talk shit. And, you know, and so we have, he, he runs into this tow truck driver who um, talks about all the different ways. He goes to the VA in the episode, has a bad runaround with, with um, one of the, the chiefs over there, um, and self-medicates. And he runs into this tow truck driver who talks about all the different ways. You know, his buddy does yoga, another one hikes. He has a dog, this tow truck driver. Um, uh, and one of, the, one of the veterans we met has had a dog that saves his life, that, that literally saved his life. They, there's a, um, a group that, that hooks veterans up with a dog. And he wanted, he was like this macho dude and wanted like a, he was like, I want a fucking like pit bull. Whatever. And they gave him this tiny, shitty little dog. <laughs> and he was like, no, no, no. But he says the dog like literally saved, saved his life. It can tell when, when he's um, feeling anxious or when he's feeling violent. And the dog will lean his head on him. And, um, and uh, you know, so the, I, I felt a lot of responsibility to do that. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a rich story. And really, really just visibility is, is, is key. And, and, and it, it, it's all about shame. And to begin to unlock that shame with visibility, I think, is the best thing that we dumb writers can do. Also, I'm not a vet, but my cat is upstairs in my hotel room and she travels with me. She's incredible, but it is a very, very real thing on multiple levels for, yeah, multiple healing, for, yeah. Well, uh, Meredith, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, kind of in terms of that, again, again that responsibility that, that TV shows and creators and writers have when they know they're going to be dealing with that issue. I mean, can you talk just a little bit about what that responsibility is? Like when you know you're about to incorporate that character, um, what do you feel is, is kind of uh, the most important aspect on your end of representing somebody or representing that, that mental illness? Well, we have a lot of discussion about the issue in the room and I want to always create a room that feels safe for everyone to be able to voice all of their concerns or uh, about tackling a specific issue. Um, you know, having been in a room where I felt was unsafe and I myself had a concern about the way a certain issue was handled, like I remember what that felt like, like sweaty palms, like shaking, like to bring something up that I was like, wanted to raise a flag. And you want people to feel that they can raise a flag because the last thing you want to do is is offend, and so you want to treat it all very sensitively. And we also, you know, as writers in the room, you're also mining everyone's own stories for story. And so, especially with a lot of the issues within Hill House, anxiety, depression, but there was also uh, addiction. And one of our writers uh, is a recovering heroin addict, and they are very vocal about the fact that they are and happy to tell stories about it. And so we had one of our characters was also a uh, an addict as well. So we mined a lot of this writer's stories and there was a, always, you know, you, you have to be very delicate when you do that because the last thing you want to do is trigger them, you know? Um, so I remember I was writing a scene in, uh, in one of my episodes in which this character, Luke, has to inject heroin into his foot and having never injected heroin into my own foot, I, I don't know what that is like. I don't know 
you know, the authentic, wanting it to be authentic and wanting to know what does a, a balloon of heroin look like and how, what does one then do with that balloon and what is with the spoon and the lighter and the thing. Like wanting it all to feel very authentic. And, you know, I remember calling this writer and saying, I want to ask you a question about how this works, but I also don't want to put you in a place where you feel uncomfortable talking about it because, my God, the last thing I would want to do is trigger them and put them back into a place. But this writer, it was so important to them for it to be authentic on the screen that they were, you know, luckily very happy. Not, I, mean, I shouldn't say happy. Who would be happy to talk about that? But they wanted to walk me through the steps. And I think that added so much. I mean, it would be, if we hadn't had that, we would have gone to a consultant, you know, and certainly wanted to get that authenticity. But I think, you know, it's, it's, it's about making sure you're having all the conversations in the room and not making decisions lightly, you know, and making sure you're getting all perspectives and feeling like you can create a safe space where a writer can raise their hand and say, I actually think we're going a little too far with this. And have we considered what we're saying by making this character do this and being able to have those conversations in the room because those are the conversations that the audiences are going to be having. And it's okay to do something that can be considered slightly controversial if it feels authentic. But I think you need to have the conversation in the room and acknowledge it first. Well, Ariel, with, with that in mind as an actor, I mean, you've obviously, you know, you have, you, whether it's a personal connection that you have yourself so you trust that you, you know what this character is going through or whether it's, you know, research you've done on your own end to kind of prepare for it, um, is there a right way to go to, you know, the writer, the showrunner, the director and talk about like, well, hey, we might need to tweak this and, and present this in a different way or, hey, I want to approach you it like this. You demand it. I'm just kidding. That's why I didn't get it listed. Um, <laughs> just kidding. No, um, no, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I, I don't, I think it's very individual. Um, it's a case-by-case -case basis, you know, Every actor has a different personality. Every writer creator has a different personality. So I think just having an open, ongoing discussion is really important. Having a close hand with your writer creator, trusting them, having them trust you to build, like to collaborate is really what it's about. It's about collaborating, right? Because I have to trust the story they've created. And in turn, they're trusting me to kind of bring it to life and, ins and, and inspire those emotions in little places that maybe weren't on the page. And so in talking with uh, Mark and VJ, man, they really gave it to me in the pilot. <laughs> they, my character, so I'm a cop, but in the pilot, not only searching for the bone collector, I have, you see in my opening scene, I'm getting ready, I'm late for work. I am popping pills, drinking coffee, um, you know, very quick into the episode, I am, you see my anxiety, you learn that I'm disqualified from the FBI, not on my application, um, they turned me down, not because I had mental health conditions, but because I lied about my application because I was afraid if they found out, they wouldn't accept me. And then it goes to my PTSD breakdown when my sister goes missing and I'm stuck between my moment of panic, I can't breathe, it's all my fault, how did I do this, my own anxiety issues to there's the freaking guy, I'm running after him and going. And so there's like this quick turn between everything I'm physically going through and then I got to go get this guy because he's got my sister. And the layers of that, talking about that process with, with Mark and BJ, 
there was a few things that popped out at me. And the first was like, okay, well, I can't just be popping pills because medication is a very real thing. And, uh, you know, one thing that I, I know personally is like when, when it's a struggle, I find to um, get the dosage right. It's almost like a, it's a hit and miss. And when someone's going through, you know, whether it's bipolar disorder or depression or anxiety, when your medication is off, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And to get it right is a, is a tricky balance. And so that was one discussion. You know, another discussion was talking about being disqualified from the FBI because it was a pilot and we're short on time. We were trying to rearrange certain paragraphs and cut things and edit things. And I just went to them privately and I just said, guys, I get the timing issue. You can cut my other stuff. I don't care. But when it comes to this sentence, we cannot cut it. And the sentence is, having mental disability does not disqualify you from the FBI. Lying about it does. And I know firsthand because in talking about my sister, you know, um, she, she was working for NBC Universal. They've been incredible to her through this process, continue to be, were back then. But it was, you know, she has a legal right to her mental health. She has a legal right to her medication. She has a legal right to know that she can show up and work every day and also go through the things she's going through personally. Obviously, she has to show up for work and do her job, but that every American has a legal right to their mental health and to feel safe in the work environment. And I really wanted to show that this cop, who's this strong, strong, uh, intuitive cop, is internally struggling with so much, and she's afraid to almost like live out her dream of being in the FBI because she's afraid of being turned away, and she's afraid of what that's going to do to her. And I felt like that was very real to bring to the table because, like I said earlier, you know, even me, I was afraid, I've been afraid to talk about my issues with, with being honest with myself and what I've been through and then also with my family members. And so that was an important. And then finally, with the breakdown, um, I really wanted to show how, like, sometimes like real life happens fast, right? Like you don't have time to like be like, okay, now I'm going to have my PTSD breakdown. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. If everybody could just give me a minute. Thanks so much. Like you don't have time for that. It happens. It happens when it's not supposed to happen, right? That's what brings it on. And so then you're caught in this moment of like, how do I literally live through this and also get back to all of the life things that I'm supposed to be doing? And that anxiety keeps the spiral going even more. And it's like, it, and so I wanted to show like, oh my God, I physically can't breathe. I'm going to throw up. I've got Lincoln in my ear telling me to go after a guy. My sister's missing. There's cops everywhere. And oh my God, there he is. Go run and get him. And you're, you're, you're literally from one moment to the next, you, she's still shaking. She's still crying, but she's running for her life after this guy. And to me, it might be an exaggerated example, but I felt like you know, we've all been there when we're having anxiety or depression or suicidal thoughts or whatever it is, we're having them at the worst time. And how do you process that? And how do you make yourself move on from that moment to the next moment and, and show it authentically and real and, and the pain and the strength in that? And I think that anyone who battles any mental health issue is strong. They are not weak. They are so strong. And that's really important for me to show as the season goes on.
that's, uh, that's very well said. And um, we've got a big group here, so I want to make sure we have time to get to audience questions. Uh, so start thinking of them right now, and then we're going we're gonna to get to it right after this. But um, one of the growing topics around mental health, and, and especially mental health on TV, is the depiction of, of suicide and how problematic that can be. And, um, you know, certain shows have gotten, you know, a lot of flack for kind of either, you know, just treating it dismissively or not taking it seriously enough or, you know, uh, worst case scenario, kind of glorifying uh, the act or romanticizing the act. Um, how, did, how, how do you go about treating that end result seriously as something that could, you know, potentially happen to a character who's suffering from these things? Um, but, but not validating that kind of fan, fatalistic thinking, like not giving that any sort of glorification or, or romanticizing it at all. Um, <clears throat> I, I think through uh, a, a lot of uh, heavy conversation in the, in the writer's room, but also keeping, keeping your focus on story, really. I mean, that's how we sort of get past any of these really kind of tough ethical questions. Um, you know, not, not everyone experiences any of these things the same way. And I certainly know I've heard, I hear from a lot of people about not only depression, but PTSD in terms of our show. And occasionally I do hear from someone who says, that's not at all how it manifests for me. And that's always a danger, but it's also, it, I mean, yeah. Not everyone manifests this, the same way. And I, I, I think as long as you're, you know what you're doing in terms of story and character is for a point, is uh, important, and is right for the show, and, and moreover is right for the story, I think you, you, will, you will have an internal modulation that doesn't allow you to do something like glorifying suicide, which sounds so horrific. Um, I, I don't even know where to where to start with that one. That was great. And uh, avoiding the, using it as a trope for sort of shock value, which yeah. I think is used a lot in especially yeah. horror, telling a fully formed story about a character who is on an arc and at the end of that arc is choosing to take their life for whatever reason, I think, and you've thought about those steps that they have taken to get to that place, and not you're not choosing to do it simply because it's going to shock the audience. All right, well, let's get to the audience questions. Uh, we've got a big group here. I don't know, do we have microphones, or is this? No, I definitely hear something. I think it's from, um, I think we'll probably just, Call on, or no, we do have mics. Okay. Um, how about here on the on the right hand side, like four rows back? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, here for being here today. It's a very important topic to talk about. Um, so, one question I have for all of you, outside of the shows that you personally have worked on, what do you think are some of the best portrayals of mental illness that you've seen on television? Why do you think they were so well done? I don't have an answer to the question, and the reason is because it's um, there's for the reason that many people I, there's so much to watch. There's so I almost want to ask you in all seriousness: is there is there something you want to recommend? <laughs> because I I feel always when people ask me questions like that, I'm like, damn it, I just never I don't watch enough stuff. I'm watching, you know, I feel like I'm watching stuff, but um, and if I think long and hard enough, I bet you I can come up with something. But um, 
this it speaks to my insecurity about just not knowing anything. Honestly, I would say you're the worst. Sorry. I mean, <laughs> it's so good. It's yeah. so good. It's so good. Yeah. But I actually was going to say, I don't, couldn't give a specific one character, but going back to what you said about your show, and um, I really like that in the horror genre, uh, there's these mental health issues coming up. Because I also personally believe, like, we are all such sensitive human beings. And whether you believe in the other side or ghosts or paranormal or energy or healing, any of the spectrum... I believe in all of it. Um, but what, wherever you fall on there, I also believe that part of uh, the, the problem is that we like, we think, we forget to remember how sensitive we are. And so, you know, like, w the more that we open that and acknowledge that and really treat each other with, with such sensitivity, I feel like the mental health conversation be can become easier. And sometimes I feel like, you know, people are treated for hallucinations or, and these things need to be taken seriously. And a lot of times medication does need to be involved. So I'm not knocking that. But I also really believe in um, talking about things on a deeper, more sensitive spiritual level. And I think we kind of just try to like ignore that side of things and just like medicate or get the definitive answer. And sometimes I think there isn't a definitive answer. It can be both. You can need medication and you can be incredibly sensitive or spiritually tapped in or whatever you want to call it. And I would just encourage people to kind of like do their own research on that because I really do feel like in the future, that's another place I would like to see the mental health conversation going is to the, the more spiritual side and what we can do to open that up. You know, there's a reason people heal through yoga and animals and, you know, horses are one of the most intuitive animals. And there's a reason people can see themselves back in that animal and it causes healing through equine therapy. And so, I don't know, I, I think like that's something very cool is happening in horror right now because it can like lead bread, breadcrumb trails to a bigger conversation. I, I will say Bojack Horseman does this very, very well. Yeah. So, oh yeah, see there you go. It's animated, and, uh, and or, or, Orange is the New Black, I think, does a great job. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, also. Wow. But see, I'm still catching up. I, like I'm not even up to, you know, I'm still behind on that. All right, do we have other questions? Uh, yeah, right here in the front, if we can. I don't know where the. I love your hair. Thank you. Um. So. I actually have very severe PTSD from a situation that I was in from the moment I was born until roughly four years ago. And this festival was actually a big reason I ended up leaving that situation. And my question to you guys is, do you have any advice for people with mental health issues who want to break into the industry? Because I feel like many of us have a story to tell and we've never seen any sort of representation of ourselves on TV because by the point we get by the time we get to the point we feel we can tell these stories, there's been so many odds stacked up against us that we don't even know where to start or who to talk to. Well, I mean, I, I, I will say that I, it feels to me like this is the moment. There's, um, there's such a, even if it's a guilt-driven one, there's a thirst for inclusivity and for different, um, different voices. Um, and uh, so, Good news, um, it, it's a good time. Uh, bad news, there's still a giant wall to climb over that surrounds Hollywood and us. Um, 
But I do know that uh, people are thirsty for it. And in general, when trying to break into writing, like what, what we're looking for is exactly who you are and what you are and what you bring to the table, not what you think you can mimic the voices of our show or, or, or something else or some generic kind of uh, Hollywood writer person. We are looking for the the girl with the teddy bear and the colored hair in the front row. I mean, honestly, you know, one of my mentors, Genji Cohan, um, is you know comes from the the same stock in the same line, and and so the more diverse voices, they're 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 hungry for them. Um, doesn't remove the barriers, but um, but at but like yeah, you, exactly who you are is who executives are going to be looking for. Are you wanting to break in with writing? Is that right? Okay. Have you like posted anything or written an article or anything sharing your story? So I have not had a lot of opportunity, and it's really nerdy. But the only thing I've really gotten is in fan fiction. I know this is terrible, but I have a lot of great stuff happens in fan fiction. It's an easy way to tell important stories. Well, that's amazing. Congratulations. Um, I was just having a conversation with um, Karina McKenzie, who's an amazing writer. I don't know if she's here, but where is she? Is she here? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, she's amazing. She's the creator of Roswell um, and many other things. But um, we were talking about this last night and things she said, like, there are certain stories I want to write that I'm afraid to and I haven't yet. And she, it, she was saying, she's like, it's, there are certain things that only you can tell. And piggybacking off of what you were saying, like, your story is special because it's your story and no one else can tell it. And knowing that you have a place to tell that story. And I would say, like, start small. Post a small article. Send it around to different, you know, the outlets that you respect and admire. Start sprinkling little things. I don't know if you're on social media, but on your social media, like, we're actually living in a time where you don't need to... It's great to have mentors and all these things, but you can also be very proactive and start sprinkling it in everything that you do. And And... That will spread. And so I think, you know, remembering that your story is important and that you control it and um, taking baby steps at a time may make you feel more empowered and more clear on how you, what you want to do next. Yeah, and if I could just give a little, I guess, writing advice. It's because it's, uh, they're exactly right. Being yourself has never been actually more of an asset now. You know, people are brands. You know, I'm old white guy. All right, that's not a great brand. <laughs> See, this is the problem. Actually, we need more, less of me and more of you is what's happening. Uh, and, but short, short, you know, the problem with writing is it always seems so, oh my God, the whole, I gotta write a whole, it's just so daunting. And I swear, it's just anything short, and I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not kidding when I say I sometimes now approach outlines and scripts when I'm just like, oh, like so much work ahead of me, I don't know if this is gonna, and, and every time, you know, I'm a fraud, I'm an imposter, it's all, you know, the same, it comes up, uh, it never stops. That's the good news. Um, <laughs> you can look forward to a future of thinking you're a fraud. Um, so if you have that now, you'll still have it later, it's great. Um, but, but I have actually li literally said, okay, I have to write an outline. That's like, like 400 tweets. 
You know, like, like you just, but in little bite-sized chunks, you know, if you just think of it, it, everything is just a brick in the wall that you're building. One brick a day, one brick an hour, you know, one brick a month. Every little step you take is praise yourself, give yourself a break, <laughs> um, do something that makes you happy. You don't just, you know, think of it, just take it a step at a time. And, and calling cards are really, they get people's attention. We, a lot of us just, you know, when you're staffing, you don't have time to read giant things half the time. So if someone writes a three-page essay or a one-page essay or a one-paragraph funny thing that, oh, I, now I know who you are, I know you're funny, or in my case, I'm just looking at a lot of comedy, or I just, I know what you're all about, that's compelling. You know, short is, is, is not only easier, but it's, it's recommended as far as getting people's attention. All right, I want to make sure we can get to a few more. Uh, yeah, right here in the front again, I think. I'm sorry, I keep making you run every time. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, so I'm a little curious about your experience in this and also maybe some advice when you're creating characters who are suffering, who uh, do the wrong things, hurt the people they love, sabotage themselves. Uh, how do you sort of mitigate and what's your relationship with the uh, expectation of likability for those characters? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, likability. Likability. Um, well, I mean, likability used to be a giant buzzword in Hollywood. Like, are they likable? And I, it's fucking stupid. And. Um, I, you know, I would just say, as long as you're creating a character that, I mean, yes, there's a line at which behavior becomes just nasty and abhorrent for no value to the show, right? If someone's just doing shitty things, there's no consequence, there's no, or it's not even interesting or funny enough. But if it has inherent value to the story, again, getting back to that, or reveals something about their character or deepens or complicates a relationship that's important in the show that, again, drives story, that's fine. But, but, but yeah, I mean, during the five years of our show, there were a lot of times we were just like, no, that's too shitty. We can't have <laughs> Jimmy do that. Um, and then I'd go, I mean, but we can, come on. <laughs> Why not? It's your <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, the name's in there. Like, um, but I, I wouldn't be afraid of it. Just make sure it's original and interesting, germane to the character, and generates conflict, i.e. story. And sometimes you get to a place where you're having a character do a thing and you just acknowledge in the room, well, you know that once they do that, we burn that character. Yeah. And you have to all just acknowledge that that's going to be okay. Like, I mean, I wasn't in the Game of Thrones writer's room this past season, but I, I imagine or wonder if they had a discussion about, okay, Starbucks. when... Yeah, Starbucks. Um, <laughs> when we have Cersei, you know, cut off the head of... Give me her name. I'm sure everybody knows her name. There you go. There you go. I knew you all would know. Um, when she does that, like, oh, we've burned her. At least for me as an audience member, I was like, oh, okay, this, like, super complicated, complex... Is she a villain? Is she not? I don't know. Oh, when they did that with her, I was like, oh, you've just burned her. Like, I can't follow you anymore. And so that, 
I mean, and that's, that's for me. I personally had that reaction. I don't know if others did. But for, if I were in the writer's room, I would say that's a decision that you've made to burn a character. Yeah. Like, there's, you know, that... So I think that that also has to be part of it. And it's... Because it's okay for a character to do something like that. You just have to acknowledge that you're going down a certain path with them that you cannot bring them back from. All right. Uh, let's, yeah, I'll try to do some of the back. This guy right here with the hat on the... Yep. So, I mean, it, maybe it's coincidence, maybe it's correlation, maybe it's confirmation bias, but it seems like the incidence of, like, anti-vaxxing coincided with Hollywood kind of using the autism spectrum as, like, a shorthand trope for being an asshole. I mean, is there, as writers and actors working in the trenches, is there something that can be done to kind of change the course of that discussion. So can you give example? I'm very curious about this. What, what examples are of, of shorthand uh, uh, Asperger's for like, asshole? Like Sheldon on Big Bang Theory and like, you know, I mean, characters where they're just saying that they're autistic and that kind of like excuses them from, you know, being like, being like people that you can um, just give a full range of emotions to. Um, the next thing I'm doing is a movie at Sony about a guy with Asperger's, and it's true. And so I'm gonna, I'm, and he's not an asshole at all. It's about about um, about that the the possibility and capability of love for someone who still has a hard time reading people. Um, I would never do that, but I think that I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, don't don't do that, writers. That's uh, <laughs> All right, let's get to a few more if we can. Uh, yeah, like right here in the middle section. Hello, thank you guys again for doing this. Um, so far as like representing uh, non-neurotypical characters on screen, we've seen a lot of um, attentiveness to empathy and getting that right. Uh, I'm curious about, uh, you know, when you're staffing up a writer's room and like making writers feel safe to acknowledge their own mental health issues, um, when, like, what are y'all doing, if anything? Well, I know that you guys are clearly doing a whole lot, but, like, how do you approach before you're actually in the room writing a story about a certain um, disorder or experience uh, in the staffing process, making folks feel safe to acknowledge that they have that disorder or have had that experience without, um, like, I know there's just so many terrible anecdotes about you know, being discouraged from discussing a disability or disorder or experience because it will make whomever is potentially staffing you question whether you can do the job. I mean, again, I, I think there is, a, there is a guilt and shame thing happening that's coming from top up in, 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 in the companies. And, I, you know, I can speak to, like, FX. John Landgraf, when we were... Um, there, there weren't uh, very many... Um, uh, African-American or diverse or female directors on, our, on FX shows. And, and, and FX was the last. Yeah. And so he made it, uh, he said, well, we are not only going to improve, we're going to be number one next year. And they did. They bullied us. They hectored all their showrunners. And it was absolutely great and necessary. And, and it, it forces, and, and so I guess by, um, uh, uh, by spillover effect, I began to really look at how I staff and how other people staff and really make it uh, and, and, and make, make it not only a safe space, but make it as sort of uh, diverse and 
and um, representative as possible. And so I, th that's I think the way it happens is is from the top down. We can we can do a certain amount, but I think it also has to be part of the corporate culture. And so we have to be vocal about it. Those studies that that then the Hollywood Reporter and Variety write about, they have to keep writing about them. Uh, or IndieWire and 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 shame shaming and nice. shaming. I mean, the companies have to be shamed. They really do. And also, I'm not in the writers' room, but I would say, like going along with that, there's there's power in numbers. We're seeing that everywhere right now with these issues coming up and it being the time to talk about them. Um, and also, I would say, like if you are a writer or going into any job, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like research your rights. I think a lot of what's happening right now is we are starting to see these things on television and that's a really inspiring thing, but we have a long way to go. The discussion is just starting. And so it can be uncomfortable, um, especially if you feel like you're the only one. Um, but it's also like, I think education is always power. Knowledge is power, right? So the more you know your legal rights going into something, I feel like maybe the more comfortable you may be to use your voice. And then that may be inspiring someone else and someone else and someone else. And so, you know, if you are the first person going into a room saying something like, great, be the leader, know your rights, like full charge ahead, you know, and, and enjoy the ripple effect. I think we have time for, for maybe one or two more. So if anybody's got one back, yeah, back on the standing in the back there. Um, so whenever you're writing something that's kind of based off of you or one of the writers, do you find that it's easier to kind of lean into that as the character or do you, uh, like differentiate like that story from that person? Like, for instance, I'm trying to write a pilot about having a heart attack from uh, doing a lot of cocaine at 22. And at first I was like, oh, this is easy. I told this story. But then when I started passing it around to people, I was like, oh shit, this is all just me on the paper. And I'm starting to get like, wondering <laughs> if I should like pull back a little bit or just kind of any general advice you have on that. Well, I mean, specificity is the, the best, usually the best way to uh, depict a character. There's even, I mean, when I was working on Everybody Was Raymond, Phil Rosenthal would constantly say, you know, if it's happening in your house, it's probably happening in a lot of houses. And so to start from there is, is a, really the way to do it. You can always then step back and once you have a piece of work, it can be altered in any way. You know, give your script to friends, trusted, trusted advisors, they'll give you notes. Then, you know, because then it's a piece of fiction and you're, you can do anything to it. But, um, you know, it's much better to start from, I had this experience and I want to tell this story then you have to make the story compelling. You know, the story, you, you, you know, the, the, the changes need to be made basically from a fictional standpoint to make it interesting as opposed to like, um, you know, I, I guess censoring it. You know, if you're comfortable with it being told and it's an interest, interesting story, that is, the, you know, a great place to start. Happy you're alive. Uh, and with that, I just want to thank everybody for coming out. Please thank our panelists for being here. Uh, enjoy the rest of your festival, and thank you. Welcome to Season 8, Day 2 of the ATX Television Festival. I'm seating with Stephen Falk and the ATX Podcast Headquarters. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, is this your first time at the festival? No, we um, we did it uh, the first year of my TV show, You're the Worst. Um, I, I believe it was the first year we, we did a screening and a Q&A with the cast. Excellent. 
And uh, so this is your second second year here. Yeah, I think it is a second. It, it, it's confusing because I've been doing the Austin Film Festival for years, and there's sort of some overlap. It's it's across the street, and I've drank in this room a lot of times, so it, it's all a little blurry. <laughs> a lot of memories. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of memories. All right. Well, uh, why don't we start off with uh, talking about uh, your favorite TV moment or memory, um, childhood memory of TV, oh, anything that God. you can think of. I'm putting you on the spot there. No. Um, well. My family was one that did not sit around a table and talk to each other. Instead, we all ate food on TV trays and watched uh, sitcoms. Um, so we would watch whatever was on, whatever was syndicated uh, at 7 p.m. Um, that was our strict dinner time. And for a while, it was like Cheers. And even oh, the MASH was a big one that my parents watched. And, and I do remember watching MASH as a little kid realizing it was way over my head you know it was about war and it's a very absurdist kind of uh sitcom but it was also incredibly serious and i do remember a couple episodes one where i think it was hawkeye was was uh, uh dreaming about uh, being in a boat in a bloody sea of like limbs and i was like i mean not only was i like what the fuck but i was also like how is this a sitcom and i think that early on put in my mind this this notion of, uh, of, of tonal independence, you know? I mean, I grew up watching a lot of traditional sitcoms, you know, uh, uh, three, four camera, um, laugh track sitcoms. So I, I certainly was uh, raised in that kind of joke format, which I think was good, but then I was also, you know, raised watching a lot of British television. My parents were Anglophiles and watching things like, like, like MASH that really did not follow the same rules. So I think, uh, I think that instilled in me something very uh, early, but also just, I was raised on television. I watched TV constantly. I wasn't an indoor kid strictly. I was, <laughs> I played sports and I, you know, rode my bike until seven every day with my hoodlum, you know, 10 year old friends. But then I would just watch TV and I'd watch everything. And it was really until I became a parent a couple of years ago, I was watching, I would watch everything. Now I don't have quite as much time. Right. And there's too much to watch. So. Absolutely. There is a, quite a lot. Um, is there anything in particular that you're, you're most excited about coming out this summer that you, that you're going to carve out some time to sit and watch? Um, yeah. Succession season two. Mm -hmm. I will definitely watch that. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff coming out next week. I know I'm, I'm blanking on what is coming up. What's coming up soon? Do you know? Oh God. Um, yeah. What, what am I, what do I want to watch? What do you, you want to watch? This. Uh, I should know this. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we had the, the cast of uh, Bless This Mess okay. in here earlier. Um, I don't know what that is. They, uh, uh, <laughs> they sat with us, Lake Bell and uh, oh, yeah, Pam yeah, yeah. Greer. Oh, sure. Uh, they were with us earlier this morning. Oh, my friend. Oh. I know my friend is doing a show on Netflix called Tales uh, of the City, mm. the uh, uh, update of, uh, of the old uh, PBS show. And that's on Netflix starting now. It's Olympia Dukakis and Laura Linney and all those folks. And it's a, a great queer show. Uh, and my friend Lauren Morelli um, created it. And so I'm excited to watch uh, more Tales of the City, I think it's called. Awesome. That's yeah. excellent. Um, so, you know, you grew up a TV. Is that, is that, yeah. did you always know that you, you wanted to work in entertainment? Was that, was that something that you? Kind of. I mean, I wanted to be an actor. So I went to NYU for acting, did a lot of plays in high school, and then, and then went on to um, only, uh, only uh, apply to um, acting schools, except for Yale and Brown, which turned me down uh, just for their pure academics. So they were like, no, no, 
No, you you only got a three eight, and uh, and yeah. you were not good, you're not good enough for us. So that made my decision easy. Then I got into every acting school I applied to. So I, I chose NYU because it was far away from the Bay Area, which I love. But it was just nice to experience something else. And um, you know, there's nothing better than being, you know, like in my class. I think there were five men, maybe three straight ones, and like 15 girls. Mm. So that was a big motivation early on to get into the arts was to try to um, try to uh, get girls, and um, and yeah, and it, and it it worked for a while. But no, I didn't want to specifically do TV. I, I'm also a you know movie person, and that's how I actually got into the industry. Um, no one would hire me to act. So I just started writing screenplays and finally sold one and uh, transitioned eventually. I still do movies, but um, but I was just getting hired more in TV. So I started doing that specifically. Excellent. And now you are the creator of You're the Worst. Yes. And, um, uh, you know, it's it's. Also, you're, you're attending ATX this year to, to be a, a panelist on uh, Breaking the Stigma, um, a yeah. conversation on mental health. Yeah. Um, those two obviously pair well together. Yeah, and my goal is to break stigmas wherever I go. I hate stigmas. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So, so why, 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 why? <laughs> <laughs> uh, why do you think why? it's important to, to break stigmas, especially today? Because stigmas are, are, are false judgments we put on things. Mm -hmm. I think... I think while I'm a very judgmental person, I think in general, uh, fear of judgment is, is what holds most of us back from succeeding in relationships or from succeeding in career um, or, or just in general um, trying new things. And, and I suffer from a lot of internal, a lot of judgments are just internal in general, but uh, also they can be external. And my show, if anything, was about the the healing power of uh, not being judged. And it was told in a comedic way in that two dirtbags sort of express, hey, I'm a fucking dirtbag. Hey, me too. Now all our shit's on the table. What, you know, let's hook up, tr try this. And what happens when you have a relationship that's based on already knowing the other person is garbage? Mm -hmm. and, and garbage, you know, obviously kind of being a, a joke, but... In general, we all feel that we're, you know, we have these sort of dark, secret, horrible things about ourselves. And um, and when you remove that, I, I think, uh, you know, power can be had. And so our show then took that kind of theme and broadened it to um, to being about things like PTSD and, and mental health. Um, our, our lead uh, character, Gretchen, um, female character, suffers from... Um, from uh, clinical depression, and uh, and so so we sort of explored that in the um, starting in the second season, mm -hmm. and you know that really came out of a lot of people I know having depression and the uh, really the devastation it does on relationships. Mm. Um, even if only you know one one person suffers, um, they both suffer, mm. and uh, and you know and and, and it, it it's something that i don't think particularly at the time 5 years ago when we when we delved into it it wasn't really treated on television with a lot of a lot of seriousness mm -hmm. um or even even you know humor but it wasn't really kind of tackled and i think the the idea is as we're following this character kind of coming to terms with that and and stating yes this is this is, I, even though I told you exactly who I was, I didn't tell you everything. And this is a thing that I've been dealing with. And, and 
now it's something we both have to deal with. And, and watching that complication be thrown in to this relationship after a, a season, the first season of just sort of trying to navigate, are we going to be in a relationship? And then, okay, great, but here's more. Right. Um, you know, I, I think bringing those things to light takes them out of the shadows a little mm -hmm. bit. And mm -hmm. I've certainly heard from so many people about... Uh, uh, who identify with Gretchen's struggle, um, and that I think is an important step. Yeah. Now, uh, you mentioned so you wrote episodes as well. You wrote close to thirty episodes mm. or more. I don't. Me myself, I probably yeah. That sounds about. Yeah. Right. So, what what kind of research did you or or you know the writing staff do on on those kinds of issues? You know, have depression, <laughs> uh, live with people who have depression. Uh, you know, but also we we just we talked to a lot of people. Um, we read a lot. Uh, yeah, reading, um, talking to, experiencing. Those are probably uh, most of the research methods. Life's lessons, yeah. The yeah, that we underwent. But you know, uh, the thing about something like depression is that there is no sort of one face of it, mm -hmm. and there's no one one methodology, and there's there's not even one term for it. Mm -hmm. my, my sister works in the mental health field and she sort of rankles against the term um, uh, clinical depression mm -hmm. um, and kind of called me out for that. But uh, certainly that's something that is used. And, and other people say, well, my, my depression doesn't manifest exactly that way. O okay, right. I, I don't care. Yeah. Uh, this, my characters did, you know. But, but I think most people um, that I've heard from um, you know, really, uh, sort of, sort of, sort of understood it and, and, and appreciated the lens we were looking mm. at it through, which is comedic, but also romantic right. and, um, and, and seeing what it does to a relationship. Right. I mean, the focus is, is the relationship aspect, finding, yes. finding a balance and, and a healthy relationship, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, healthy, even if you're yeah. unhealthy yeah. or you, you're battling yourself. But it's still a microcosm of in relationships we have, we bring things to bear to the relationship that the other person has to um, either put up with or walk away from. Right. And, um, and this is a pretty big one. Yeah. Uh, I, w I would say so. Um, and you, you mentioned, uh, you know, from hearing hearing from people, the community, um, you know, in terms of, of building a community around the recognition and representation of mental health on TV. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are some, um, I think, a lot of shows starting to refocus the the attention on on the mental health. We've we've seen yeah. a lot of physical health and mm -hmm. you know whatnot. Um, so in terms of the community, how, you know, has, how, any feedback that you've received from people on, on, you know, thank you for representing this? And <laughs> Yeah, I mean, literally that. And it's, it's near daily. Um, certainly when we were doing the show, we, we, we aired our finale a couple months ago. Um, but still now they, they come in. And, and, you know, I think, I think the, there's, a, there's a, the Venn diagram of people who really love television and certainly people who come to festivals like this mm -hmm. um, just to sort of um, be close to the action and, and meet people and get some FaceTime um, uh, and, and, you know, broaden the fan community, which is such a, uh, such a nice accessible thing now with the internet. I think there's a big crossover between that, that uh, and, and the people who like our show and then people who suffer from, you know, from whether it's depression or just generalized anxiety or... I mean, a lot of, a lot of things drive people to seek comfort in television. Mm -hmm. and, and 
and to uh, to stay at home and watch stories and um, and see and and then to see people who are going through some of the same things, I think, can help maybe get them to walk out the door and mm -hmm. and or at least just to not feel so alone and 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 uh, I think that's just that's sort of one of the more important things we can do. I mean, I, I think I think there's a lot of a lot of power and goodness in art. I, I, I happen to believe art is maybe the most important thing in the world um, in, uh, in, in discussing our humanity and, and bringing us close together and, and broadening our, our insight into what other people are going through. And, yeah. you know, I think uh, there's a profound lack of empathy out in the world and a profound lack of looking up from one's own life. Even just, you know, if you, if you drive, uh, how few people use their turn signal, how few, few people even think, oh, maybe it would be helpful if the person behind me or even the person coming the other direction knows I'm about to turn, right? But a lot of people don't even, even remotely begin to think of that. And I think if, so if I'm here to say any message, use your fucking turn signal. But, <laughs> but I think the bigger point is that, uh, that art, and I do believe television is and can be art, um, uh, uh, makes it possible for the world to seem a little smaller and, and less uh, lonely and scary. Yeah. You know, on the podcast TV Campfire, uh, Caitlin and Em um, discuss uh, that television has a lower barrier to access, that, that more people can access, especially today, can access television unlike any other medium. Yeah. Um, and that because the barrier is so low that it's it's reaching more and more people and it's 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 that much more important to represent and to spread the message and to break the stigma um, because more and more people are able to see. Um, yeah. And even if you're not dealing with a mental health issue, um, maybe your loved one, maybe your yeah. friend, maybe someone that you don't know is experiencing that. And, to, and to, if it's not a reflection of yourself, but a reflection of your friends, your family, others that you know. Right. And I think, I think placing within a context that allows the viewer to, uh, if not empathize directly with it, see it in a in a metaphorical context mm -hmm. where where they can understand um, the universality of struggle. I mean, you know, even if if I'm watching something about PTSD, I never went to war, but we brought that story to light. You know, not only because I think it's criminally underrepresented in the arts. Mm. Uh, generally, you know, hipster white people who make television aren't the ones fighting right. for this country, if you can still call it fighting for this country, what we tend to go to war for. Um, but uh, That's a different panel. Yeah, that is a different <laughs> panel. But I, I you know, I, I, I think, uh, I think it's, it, it's important to, um, to, to, to show that, you know, there's, there's a lot more going on in the world and, uh, and there's a lot more stories out there and, even if you haven't been to war, not only can you educate yourself in that, but also you can recognize a hidden struggle in your that you may be under, uh, undergoing that maybe parallels what our characters are going through. Absolutely. Now, uh, we ask this question a lot of, of guests, um, the future of television. Um, you know, where do you see television going in the next five, ten years? Um... You know, I, th I think the form is being broken all the time. I think you're going to be seeing a lot less um, genre definitions. I mean, there's, there, 
they won't go away because that's how you market things and now that's how you categorize things on streaming services. But I, I think in terms of like half hour, hour, drama, comedy, the lines are being blurred more and more every day. Uh, and I think that's a, uh, a good, positive thing. Um, so I see that happening. Um, you know, my former boss, John Landgraf, you know, kept predicting a, a contraction, and that hasn't yet in, in the sheer, you know, number of shows and the, and the sheer number of outlets getting into the business. I think for every, every you know, cable channel that stops their scripted um, their 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 jump into or their spread into scripted. You see a new company, whether it's a cable company like Spectrum mm -hmm. or phone company like AT and T. I guess they're also cable, um, or you know, uh, um, appliances or apps. You know, I think you know probably Frigidaire is going to start doing shows, and and Waze are going to start doing shows in between <laughs> travel directions. Uh, uh, everyone's getting into it. I I think that contraction continues to um, uh, uh, evade. Now, he's a lot smarter than I, and the economics, um, you know, right now there's sort of an arm ra arms race for content, mm -hmm. right, for libraries, and as contractions uh, happen and as companies merge and eat each other up, um, the, the, you know, whoever has the, the biggest library, Disney, mm -hmm. uh, wins, and I think you'll start to see other people um, get out of the business a little more but um but right now I, you know i think things are, are getting more specialized and smaller and the 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 ratings threshold for success are a lot smaller and more it's about content and ownership and getting people to pony up your you know nine or 19 bucks a month mm -hmm. um and as long as that's going on i think there'll be a lot of room for interesting and weird and more diverse story as um you know, uh, 20 million viewers is, is less important, uh, if feasible at all. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we got a couple more minutes here. So okay. uh, I just want to ask, what's what's next for you? Where where can people find you and or uh, see what's next? I'm going to be doing a movie next. Uh, uh, so uh, not germane to this, uh, this festival, but... Um, uh, next in television, I'm doing a adapting a book for uh, Warner Brothers with the Berlanti Company. Cool. Um, you know, because he only has 18 shows on the air. I think he needs a couple more. And I'm uh, adapting a New Yorker article for Paramount. Um, none of these have been announced, but I don't really care. Because um, <laughs> I think the deals have closed. Or maybe not. I don't know. But that's what I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing a few different things in a few different genres um, and seeing what sticks. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you for stopping by the, the podcast, podcast headquarters um, and uh, enjoy your time here, here at the festival. I will. And uh, for, for those of you who are listening, um, make sure you check out the mental health panel as well. Yeah. All right. Thank uh, you, Steve. I'm going to be so good on that one. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and AJ Myers, along with our audio partners, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020 in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit atxfestival.com and follow us on social media at ATX Festival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount 
on badges exclusive to the TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. And stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week.